Hello, I'm Anne Kibler. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is photojournalist Robert Nicholsburg. Nicholsburg worked as a contract photographer for Time magazine for more than 25 years. Since 1988, he has made more than 50 visits to Afghanistan, documenting the withdrawal of Soviet troops, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism and the arrival and departure of American military forces. His photographs appear in a new book, Afghanistan, A Distant War. Nicholsburg's work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Newsweek and other international publications. He lives in New York City and continues to travel extensively for his work. Robert Nicholsburg, welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Anne. It's lovely to be here. You have been covering Afghanistan for 25 years. Why did you decide to do a book now? There was an opportunity perhaps after 9-11-2001, and events at that time really took off, requiring more presence than a chance for me to pull back and go through the files to put something together. But I think now that the Americans have announced their withdrawal, it very well dovetails with the way I first started going into Afghanistan. Let's go back to when you first arrived in Afghanistan um, in the late 1980s. The Soviet troops were in the process of withdrawing. What was the mood of the country then? Certainly a lot of anticipation as the Mujahideen were getting closer and closer to the capital. The opposition, in other words, was not laying down their guns just because the Soviet army decided to leave. There was an effort to get the groups to sign an agreement and allow the government of President Najibullah, the person that the Soviets had left behind in power, to maintain a peaceful regime. But the fight continued. It was also uh, indicative of the amount of cooperation within those groups that they could never really agree on anything, particularly unanimously regarding peace or fighting. Fighting seemed to be their preferred way to continue. How did things change then after the Soviets left? Well, the rocketing of the city continued on a, on a regular basis. It was usually one or two or five or ten rockets every day uh, shot indiscriminately basically towards the Ministry of Defense. That, that was the group's preferred or stated target. They very often landed in civilian areas, downtown market areas, on the wrong side of the river, near schools and residential areas, causing a lot of havoc. And once that got to a point where um, prior to 1992, when the government did fall, there was a lot of concern within the groups that we must unite in order to get control of the capital. And sooner or later, Najibullah would realize that it was time for him to leave. In March of that year, there was talk of defections within the military, within his cabinet. There was uh, strong rumors that people were ready to leave, that there was no way that uh, the government of Najibullah would be able to hold and that the Mujahideen, including with the backing of the United States and Pakistan, that they were going to firmly put their flag downtown in Kabul. As the 90s progressed, the influence of the Taliban became stronger and stronger. And among other things, they banned the photographing of human subjects. How did you work around that restriction and other restrictions? It was a challenge. Uh, just getting the visa alone was difficult, and that could only be done through uh, a trip to Pakistan. They didn't have an embassy outside of three countries. And once the visa was granted, you'd arrive at the airport and immediately picked up a foreign ministry minder or a person that chaperoned you, generally a person with at least 50% fluency in English, and those people conducted you to the foreign ministry where you officially registered, and then 
with the reporter and myself, you would give them a wish list of, of something you wanted to accomplish. The visa was no was no longer than two weeks, so you very often only had a week, for instance, if uh, the magazine wanted us out or that's all they were going to give to us for uh, a particular story. So within six days, you had to complete your mission there. And very often that wish list included seeing different people, going to different sites, and perhaps dealing with the public in general, schools, health, and uh, functioning of major institutions in the capital. These were also non-functioning institutions at the time. There was a general breakdown in civil law and in civil government, and the Taliban were often very insecure in allowing access to this fact. Their uh, main capital for the Taliban government was really Kandahar, but that was not the capital of the country. So they had formed a, a, a cabinet, and very often you could not get to meet the particular ministers. They refused to be interviewed. They refused to have their pictures taken. So that wish list was quickly cut in half, for instance. And it was also a very sensitive um, wish list if, if it regarded uh, access to women and women's rights or literacy, health care, for instance. Women were no longer allowed to deal with male patients in a hospital. And Afghanistan has always had a strong, skilled set of nurses and doctors that maintained the healthcare system, no matter what gender was presented to them. But now this was segregated. Only females could deal with female patients. And the amount of people that had fled the country was considerable leaving the healthcare system, particularly in hospitals and the emergency room and maternal care as well, left to people not very skilled. So there was a general sense that this was really a, a new regime, but uh, operating on uh, not all cylinders, for instance. Mm -hmm. So these were topics that we tried to get access to and very often we would have some success, but often we were stymied and stonewalled. So each trip was um, very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And I understand that it makes a great difference which minder you end up with, that if you have a minder who knows what he's doing, it can make all the difference in getting your story. It's very true. Uh, the minders came from different parts of the country. They were all Pashtun, and most of them were trained uh, in religious schools in Pakistan. That's where the inventory of Taliban officials were trained. The schools weren't functioning. Uh, the families of uh, Taliban officers or a minder, for instance, will have grown up in a refugee camp somewhere close to the uh, Afghan border inside Pakistan. So coming from a rural area, they would be, yes, literate, but they would also not be familiar with outsiders outside of their own village, for instance. But someone who would come from Kabul or Kandahar or one of the major – or Herat, for, for that matter, or Mazar-e-Sharif, one of the urban centers of Afghanistan, if they were part of the Taliban, they were at least familiar with strangers and knew how to deal with – or at least – were, were more cooperative and collaborative, they would say, well, I need to take the permission from my senior officer. Uh, that would be a good polite way of saying maybe to your request. But often the more uh, stubborn rural-based Taliban would immediately say, no, I don't think that's possible. So it left you very little negotiating room. And this was a way to test really the resilience or the flexibility of a Taliban officer is if you would ask for something, at least from the photography side, um, can I stop here at the bus station and take a picture of the buses that are that are leaving, say, for rush hour? A very innocuous request. But uh, defined by a Taliban strictly would mean no pictures of human beings. But OK, that's fine. So that was a way for me to quickly find out 
how much leeway did I have? Did I have to sneak in the pictures? Did I have to get up early at dawn and walk the marketplace surreptitiously, hiding behind a blanket or a lot of scarves wrapped around my head and then some one camera only out, not a camera bag with two, three lenses showing? Because there were also people in the public who took to these new roles very narrowly. And would there were people in the public, even though they weren't Taliban, would say, sorry, you, you're not allowed to take pictures. What are you doing here? So there was vigilance all around, not just animosity between pro or uh, opposing people to the Taliban philosophy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you actually had to conceal your camera and just point and, and shoot, basically, I understand. There's, uh, you develop certain ways of concealing a camera. It, it's kind of a big object, even though it's it's something quite small and fits in the palm of your hand. It doesn't disappear, and it normally goes up to your face. So you have re- more or less three seconds to take a picture before a person in your line of sight will see that it's not just a face that's looking at me, that there's an object in front of that person's face, and that thing, that object is obviously a camera. Three seconds. I've timed it. I've watched my wristwatch as I just go through the motions of putting a camera up to my face, and I'll see before that person turns their face and walks away. Mm-hmm. So that's not just in Afghanistan, but that's generally universal. Mm-hmm. So you develop a, a way to pre-focus a camera, hope you get it, say, eight feet between you and myself right here. I would set the lens at that and then try to aim it without looking at the camera, just keep my eyesight away and click the camera without the motor. If there was a motor drive, I would shut that off because that makes a different noise and maybe cough at the same time or put my book down or just shuffle my feet so that it would muffle the sound of the shutter. There were all kinds of ways of zipping your jacket up very high and having the camera just stick up and then having a scarf right above the camera, for instance, and turning and putting it on a timer, for instance, which is about eight to 10 seconds on the self-timer and set that and just stand there and hold it. But again, there was never any assurance that that picture would be in focus. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a moment ago the role of women. And if you look through your book, there are very few pictures of women because you didn't have access to take pictures of women. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It was very noticeable to me that to get inside the daily life of a family required that all members of the family be present, really, to do it completely. And in this particular culture, not just in Afghanistan, but in Islamic cultures, you have to tread very lightly about the role of women and in particular the traditional role of women within that family. It's usually a combined household, for instance. So there will be two or three brothers living together in a big compound. And the mother-in-law of the woman in the house reigns supreme about how the daughter-in-law is going to function, whether they go out to market covered with a burqa or just a headscarf, for instance, a hijab. So that is not determined by the woman, usually. It's by her mother-in-law or by the rules of the house. So when a foreign male, or just a male, an Afghan male, unknown to the family, or a distant relative comes in, they're still a little bit concerned about the interaction between male and female. That's the traditional Afghan Islamic way And yes, women are property. Marriages are arranged, and the women rarely object to that. If they're professionals, then there's a different understanding within the household. But generally, you can know a male head of the household for 10, 12 years and never meet the wife. You'll meet the young daughters. They'll come out and serve you tea, and then dinner will be served, but not with a full table and the full family. So you have to tread very lightly. And certainly if a woman does come into the room, 
you never reach out and to immediately shake their hand. You keep your hands clasped in front of you. And if the woman decides that this is okay or if it's accepted within that household that they can touch the skin of a foreigner and a male, a non-Muslim, then that's appropriate then to reach out and offer your hand as a, as a token of greeting. But all of these things, it's also true in India where I was based, it's, it's less strict, but there are some very conservative parts of India. Even in uh, the remote desert area, for instance, in Rajasthan, you have to watch to see how other people greet each other and whether the presence of women is uh, prevalent uh, many women in India will have this uh, thin veil over their face and that again is, is historically from the Mughal Empire coming in from Afghanistan and Iran and imposing these dress and codes of, of conduct over the female population. So it, it's, it's interesting how I would go about finding women to include in my story. And just the random shot at a market of women going out before the Taliban came in, that was possible to get pictures of that. But they weren't very effective. They were just daily um, superficial images that I didn't think would have the impact that I was after to include in a book. So I decided, yes, it's fairly obvious that um, an, an intimate moment with the opposite sex for me in a foreign country is certainly a challenge. But that, that changed overall after 9-11. Once the Taliban were out, women felt quite liberated to a certain degree, more accepting of the camera. And prior to the Mujahideen coming in in 1992, there were a lot of female professionals in banks, in schools, in hospitals who would happily and confidently stand to have their pictures taken. We're talking to Robert Nicholsberg, a longtime contract photographer for Time magazine and author of a new book, Afghanistan, A Distant War. You just mentioned uh, changes in the behavior of women after 9-11. What else did you notice in your work after 9-11, um, as a photojournalist, how did your access change? I still maintained uh, my contacts from prior years and with Afghans in the cities and in the rural areas. But at this time, with the presence of U.S. and NATO forces, that they also had to be included in any good survey or any article that you would do. It was obviously... There was obviously a security angle to every story that involved Afghanistan, whether it was as mundane or off the point of focus, say, as where, what are the musicians doing now? Because prior, under the Taliban regime, musicians would have to hide their instruments. They, their music was not tolerated, for instance. So once that was... Um, a new chapter for them, and the radio station began functioning again fully. Television stations began uh, being established, not just the government ones, but private ones began. Music, dance, and entertainment became, again, part of the daily life of Afghans. We could then start shooting that and interviewing musicians or artists or painters. But prior to that, everything had been kept buried in the attic in a trunk any performing arts was prohibited, even as ridiculous as it may sound, singing birds. It was, it was often thought of as a joke, but Afghans are big bird lovers, and it was traditional for them to hang out their canary every day in the sunlight for a few hours, and the birds were singing, and whether it was a joke or actually imposed, but canaries were not allowed to sing under the Taliban. Tim McGurk, your colleague and a former time bureau chief, writes in your book that when he was in Afghanistan, he was astonished by the disconnection between American troops and Afghans. And he said the cultural gap between them only widened over time. What was your experience of that during the time you've spent in Afghanistan? I think it's quite true that the gap developed 
It's also true that a lot of the soldiers had cycled through Iraq at that point and then been uh, repositioned in Afghanistan on a different tour. And that brought to Afghanistan a, a certain distance which was very much more pronounced with U.S. soldiers and Iraqi citizens. The language barrier alone in an Arab country and a Western, particularly American, uh, culture was vast to begin with. Yes, they could remain friendly and there's a certain amount of respect given between officials and officers in the U.S. military. But at the non-commissioned officer level, there's a, there was a lot of inability to relate to the local people. And certainly once the suicide bombing began as an issue, not only in Iraq but in Afghanistan, the distance had to be kept for security reasons. And that didn't help much as far as offering uh, the traditional Afghan hospitality, which is always there, the uh, inability of Americans to quickly gauge or understand local customs. For instance, going through a house on a search mission looking for anything to deal with the enemy, Taliban, for instance, you don't have males going through female clothing. With They're searching through trunks and drawers. You have a female soldier do that or Marine. Well, that didn't register very well with the Afghans and particularly in the rural areas where the security issues were far more pronounced than downtown Kabul where they're much more sophisticated and open-minded and able to handle another dumb American coming through. But the gap did widen and anger did increase, particularly with convoys going through town, blocking traffic or going over curbs and people not understanding that local traffic had to move to the side to allow a 10-truck convoy of NATO or American troops go through and people who tried to uh, or got angry at this and tried to cut in between a truck inside a convoy would often be fired upon. So that's not the way an argument is often dealt with in Afghanistan. So this just broadened the gap and increased the anger. What about American policy at that time? How did that play out on the ground? It never really had a chance to gain traction here over a period of time. Americans took the, their eye off the ball when they went to Iraq in 2002 and never really gave the full commitment that the Afghans were hoping and expecting. There was a lot of optimism and positive thinking when the Taliban were kicked out thanks to the American bombing and the pursuit of the Taliban kicking them out all the way back to Pakistan. What happened then was something that the Afghans really, again, felt depressed them and got them worried about what kind of commitment were they going to see from the Americans if all of a sudden they arrive and then they disappear to another war that still to them didn't make any sense and certainly to me didn't make any sense to go after Saddam Hussein. So that kind of commitment for a long-term solution which Afghanistan does require when you go into reconstruction and rehabilitation of a country that's been at war for 30 years. It requires projects, not just simple health and maternal care, but literacy, infrastructure, uh, rewiring the place completely top to bottom. And then when we have members of the cabinet and the Bush administration say we are not into nation building, again, this sends a message out. It's not just to the Afghan people, but it also sent a message to the entire area and to the United Nations that was relying on humanitarian care, but also relying upon security for those people who were coming here to deliver humanitarian aid. Security is a big issue in this country, personal as well as national. And if that's not there, then you're also not going to get the commitment from the foreign NGOs and humanitarian agencies to commit to rebuilding of this country. U.S. troops are scheduled to withdraw completely by the end of 2014 at this point. What has been the overall impact of their stay on the Afghans, positive and negative? What, what are they leaving behind for good or for bad? 
They leave behind a lot of good things, at least an improvement in the overall infrastructure of the country. Roads have improved, sanitation ever so slightly, and there's a difference, of course, in the urban areas and in the rural areas. This is primarily a rural agricultural country, but the facilities that have improved inside the capital, there's more regular electricity, there's more regular access to goods, roads have improved. Trucks, cars, taxis are flowing freely. There's more gasoline available now. Yes, prices are going up. Schools are open. Schools have been rebuilt. A lot of schools, of course, in the rural areas were opened and then abandoned because they couldn't find teachers that were willing to go out there in a very insecure area. So people have had to migrate to the cities to get all of these facilities that the UN, as well as NATO and US troops, have delivered here including shops like hardware stores. Things are needed to, for reconstruction. Building materials, the trades, you can see all of the heavy equipment that's available for rent outside of the city where they were kept in big parking lots because there was a construction boom. People started coming back who had been in exile for 10, 15 years, rebuilding their home, occupying new land, rebuilding uh, what they had if, if their home was near a front line, for instance, downtown area, the real estate prices have just skyrocketed. So, of course, people are interested in coming back and rebuilding and taking advantage of those things. Hotels have opened up. Restaurants now. Curfew. There is no real curfew. You can stay out quite late. Dining areas stay open. Places for entertainment. Weddings happen very openly in public. So there have been some benefits. Certainly literacy has gone up and maternal mortality, while it's still one of the highest in the world, it has improved. But on the negative side, there's a lot of insecurity and concern that they're no longer going to be able to trust their own people who've been trained by the foreign forces. They don't know really which, which political direction the country's going to take. The influence of Pakistan and Iran, for instance, Iran has a very uh, strong following in this country. It's 18, 19 percent Shia, and they owe a lot of their allegiance to the Iranian side. Yet you have people from Pakistan on the Sunni side. Also, this ethnic divide uh, is a very great concern how the country is going to go. Pashtun, Tajik, Uzbek, Hazara, for instance, all the uh, major ethnic groups are very concerned about who's going to be leading them. We've been talking to photojournalist Robert Nicholsberg, author of Afghanistan, A Distant War. You've chosen some music to take us to the break. Would you like to tell us about your choice? The Talking Heads is a group that I would always take along with me. It's great, lively, entertaining, interesting, clever music and lyrics that I never got tired of, particularly on nights when I'd have three, four hours to edit pictures, it would keep me going. We'll be right back. We've been talking to photojournalist Robert Nicholsberg, author of Afghanistan, A Distant War. Before the break, we talked about changes you've witnessed in Afghanistan during the past 25 years. Let's talk now about what it's like to work as a photographer in a war zone. You've talked about the physical challenges that you as soldiers have faced in Afghanistan, the mountainous terrain the 120 degree temperatures in the summer. 
How do you, as a photojournalist, cope with these same challenges? When you decide to go with the security forces, you have to keep up with them physically, and endurance is a big element in that challenge. I would train physically prior to going in on an embed, going to the gym on a regular basis. Prior to the Iraq campaign, for instance, I knew I was going to be with the Marines who sprint a lot. So, of course, I started to sprint in the morning between telephone poles, run as fast as you can between two sets of poles, walk to the next set, sprint to the next set, and continually do that on a regular basis. This is one way I could keep up and remain physically and mentally fit to keep up with them because I'm trying to figure out what they're going to do next, not just what they're doing at that particular moment and where to position myself, for instance. And it becomes a very much of a spatial exercise. Where is the colonel? Where is the sergeant? Mate? All of these kinds of elements that deal with the challenges of keeping up with the military. And sometimes you're carrying several pounds of equipment. No, very often I'm carrying. I'm also carrying my own food and my own water. Uh, they're not there to be your concierge. They, and particularly Marines, will make sure you're not picked up at the airport, that you walk. The Army will present a jeep to you. You have chosen to live in the countries that you have covered, first in El Salvador, then in Thailand and India. And in each instance, you have been photographing turmoil, uprisings, wars, our social upheaval. Um, I mentioned earlier your colleague Tim McGurk from our uh, time, and he once said that you react to gunfire like a bird dog to the rustle of quail. What draws you to dangerous situations and why do you keep going back? Well, there's never more than one dangerous situation at one particular time. I'm curious about what the cause of this violence and this uprising might be. And uh, the reporter needs to ask questions from a lot of people who are also on that determining side of a political movement, which often leads to gunfire and some other way than political dialogue. Are they reaching a decision or a result? So in the cases of developing countries, it's often turmoil which determines the country's future, not just the present. But when it resorts to violence, history changes rapidly, spontaneously, and often there's chaos. And I believe that it's a credible challenge to try to figure out what causes this chaos, not only what causes the resolution of this chaos and violence, but what, what brings it about to begin with? At that particular point between crisis and resolution, you have history in the making, and I was there to document that. And if you are determined and clear thinking in that approach, you will find yourself at the doorway to a historical event, at least a journalistic moment, that will then become the story of tomorrow or for the week. How do you decide in such chaotic circumstances, how to prioritize what you are shooting? I'm a firm believer in embracing the ambiguous. And in, in that, reality takes on a different face. You have to get to know the people who are around you. Look not just at their facial expressions, but what their hands are up to which way they're standing, the body language, for instance, the level of anger that you might sense developing in a discussion or an argument where you, that you're witnessing. And at times, if you can predict that, rely upon your, intu your intuition and your instincts, you'll, with proper hand and eye movement, the camera will be up to your face to capture that movement. It becomes almost like a video camera, a still image, a series of still images. But very often I was seeing in my capture of still moments a video taking place, or the noise would be a sensory element that I couldn't really capture in a still photograph. But 
the majority of my time is spent focusing as a still photographer. And certainly the people involved, the interactions of people with their environment is what I'm trying to capture and document. And you have taken a lot of pictures on the front lines, but you also like to go and see the impact on the regular people, not just the people who are fighting. I think they're the ones that bear the burden nine times out of ten. The combatants are aware of what they're up against. It's the civilian population that remains in that unknown area that they just don't know from one hour to the next what's going on at the front line. They're not that curious that they want to go up there and take a look. But this is sort of a counterintuitive thing for for journalists who cover conflicts. Remember, I was also covering press conferences and things very benign like a, a, the inauguration of a new prime minister or things that are very – uh, predictable. And there's also a challenge to taking an interesting photograph of that. By living overseas and doing this day in and day out, I did have to do the mundane things as well, not just come in as a, uh, a parachute and uh, cover a fire and then leave after two weeks. That wasn't the way I decided to do things. So every day I would go downtown. If there was a demonstration in New Delhi, for instance, I was I'd take a look to see. What, and they have a very strong tradition of coming up against the barricade outside of parliament building, for instance, in protesting, no matter who they were, teachers, taxi drivers, professionals, lawyers, whatever. And the fire hoses would come out and they'd be hosed down and everyone would eventually have their 10 minutes in the sun, so to speak. And there was a way to figure out how to cover a demonstration, for instance, because their vote didn't really matter. They they were there to show their concern, their anger, and that would make it into the newspaper the next day. Whether it was worthy enough for Time Magazine or the New York Times, people I worked for, or any other publication, you didn't know. But I at least tried to refine my perspective around uh, dissent and expressing themselves, which in the third world is not done very peacefully. How do you maintain your cool under fire, literally under fire? What's going through your mind when there are bullets flying overhead? Uh, fear is always there. And if you don't remain aware of that element, you're going to get into trouble. But I also try to gauge how far forward I'll be able to go within a certain amount of time. And keeping all of your senses at ready alert, at full power all the time. You lose track of time, for instance, about uh, what's going on here. And if you come into a particular zone of conflict, not knowing really who the people are, who the protagonists are, that presents another problem. Often it'll be a crossfire then how do you get out of a crossfire? So immediately, once you arrive to a situation, simultaneously with that arrival, you have to think about your exit constantly. Go forward, think about reverse. Go forward, think about reverse. Go laterally, think about reverse. So with every action forward, there has to be a thought about the reaction backward. When you lose sight of the backward is when you get stuck and f you start to literally freak out. But you're not supposed to freak out in conflict. That is a sure sign that something even worse than a bullet's going to happen. You may not ever get out of there. So with that thought in mind, where's the driver? Did I lose him? Where's the car? Where's the river? Where's the hill? Where are the landmarks? The geography becomes important. And if there's a language issue, when everyone is afraid, there's a common language. It's like it's time to leave. Or uh, if, if some improvement in the situation has happened and the bullets calm down, then you can get up and actually stand and stretch your legs. But again, constantly aware of the elements around you. And it's, you can never perfect it. If you think you can, you're also going to be a pretty good target at some point. You're never invisible, yet you try to be invisible. It, it sounds exhausting. How do you cope 
mentally and emotionally, not just with the the tragedies that you witness, but with the the personal toll of always having to be on alert? I don't really have a specific answer for that. Each situation is unique and different, but uh, decompressing from a situation like this, I often do it um, independent of other people, particularly loved ones who aren't familiar with this kind of emotional cycle. And it's very difficult to explain. I'm not going to be able to answer you specifically. In this particular interview, it takes a long time really to uh, establish some kind of baseline of when you have you feel reached a level of decompression where you're back to normal, back to sea level, back to stability. I, I know that I've been asked to go on vacation very often by my wife, and it will take days for me to slow down after a situation like coming out of Iraq. It takes four to five days until you can lower your heart rate to lower your mental capacity to process normal things about just getting up at at a normal time instead of sleeping on the ground and hearing artillery fire or some kind of siren or emergency or whatever it is that is involved in a, in covering a conflict. But I also like to think that I'm not just a war person, that I understand human nature and that I need to improve and document and witness other things that happen outside of conflict. What impact has your work had on your family? I know your wife, Crary Pullen, is a photo editor. So I'm assuming that she understands a lot about your work as a professional, but what about the personal impact? She's not, uh, my wife is not involved in the pictures that I send in. She's more of a, a feature of the softer stories of a magazine. And the, this kind of kinetic approach or the way of operating in a conflict zone is really still a mystery to her. But I realize that uh, this profession is not the greatest for domestic tranquility, that while I am not uh, Colonel Kurtz, you know, at the dining room table freaking out and, you know, stabbing the guest in, in the palm of their hand that's sitting next to me just because I get angry or throwing stuff like that, those tantrums that are typically associated with people who cover conflict too long. And it does happen. I do cherish more peaceful moments of my life when I'm not out uh, poking around. What do you like to do in those peaceful moments? Go to museums, go to movies, sit around the table with friends, looking at uh, magazines and books that have stacked up on the table that have accumulated while I'm gone, um, reconnecting with people that I'm normally around. Uh, and it doesn't really entail a full discussion about where I've been and what I've come back from. I don't think that's really um, – it doesn't settle well with people that aren't involved in this particular type of, uh, of the profession. Amongst other photographers who do this, other photojournalists, there is sort of a more affluent way of uh, communicating. It's understood a lot of these things are um, things that are impossible to describe to people outside of that group. And that's true for architects, Wall Street, doctors, wherever that risk factor is involved. We're talking to Robert Nicholsberg, a photojournalist and author of a new book, Afghanistan, A Distant War. Have there been situations when you have had to intervene or when you have chosen to intervene to help someone who has been affected by a tragedy or the, the chaos that's going on around them? And if so, how do you make that decision? There have been a few uh, situations, circumstances that uh, you really have to put the camera down and either apply pressures or similar to a tourniquet if someone is wounded, uh, look for transport for them. Intervening in an argument, for instance, is not something I'm, I pursue, uh, particularly when people are armed. And you have to – these situations you don't plan for, for instance. But I, I don't see 
myself as a missionary here. I'm not there in that kind of aspect. I'm there to cover what's happening in front of me to document that. And but it, it, it's a good question. And I think everybody, when you come into a conflict, a very dramatic moment in these areas where violence is going on, you also have to think about ways of getting out of it yourself. But I remember one situation in Afghanistan in the early morning, traditionally, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar would fire rockets in on the capital in the morning and then later in the afternoon. In the morning, of course, it was rush hour and there were a lot of bicycles in, in Kabul at the time. He fired a couple of rockets and they landed quite close to where I was staying, obviously aimed at the Ministry of Defense. And I decided or I was able to get a driver to agree to go down to that area. And sure enough, the rockets, uh, large ones, 122s or 107 millimeter rockets are just purely anti-personnel. They don't make much of a hole, but they just send out shrapnel uh, horizontally. And they're there to hurt people. Well, it landed on a road and caught a bunch of people on bicycles. We got down to the site, and it's hard to tell where these rockets land. And one person was laying in the, on the gutter on the side of the road and was crying out for help. And there was another person, several people, in, in fact, um, lying on the sides of roads, obviously bicyclists go, going to work. So we helped a man up, put him in the backseat of the car, and took off. Well, did I wait around long enough to put as many people as I could into the trunk, onto the top of the car, into the hood? No, I didn't because I expected other rockets to come. And other rockets did come. But the people, for instance, who were dead, I was asked by another journalist later on, why didn't I take the person in who was dead? And I said, well, he's dead already. I mean, he was obviously, he was, all life had gone. I've got to think about myself and the driver. It's not just myself that I'm worried about, but it's the car you came in. You have to get out. So we took the man to the hospital, and he had uh, injuries in his midsection. He couldn't quite see it, but he couldn't walk. So perhaps spinal, but perhaps internal injuries. I went back uh, two days later with the same driver and found him in the hospital. And, uh, and I was concerned. I mean, you do quickly establish this kind of helping hand position there. And I survived that. He survived it also, but he was wounded. So we went in and visited him. We found his hospital bed. And he was very happy to see us. He remembered. I think his family had come in. But he also wanted to know why I didn't take his bicycle. But you see, so there is some crazy humor involved yes. in this. But I was very happy that, yes, I, I, I certainly intervened. But if this had been me on the bicycle, I would have hoped that somebody would have put me in a car and taken me to the hospital. And for a moment, you get really to see what it's like to, on a daily basis, go to work and have rockets land. And it's random completely. Mm-hmm. In the years since you have been going to Afghanistan, the media industry worldwide has undergone dramatic changes. Um, we've seen a decline of print, uh, the advent of online news and social media. How have those changes affected your work and your ability to educate Americans about what's happening overseas? I still remain very curious and... Uh, with a profound interest in, in pursuing a particular topic such as Afghanistan. But your outlets are more limited now, and often you have to find funding prior to showing the completed product or report or uh, visual story. You have to f use some of your own money, for instance, generate um, interest that you're going and uh, let people know that you're out there on a more regular basis, either through social media or just your contacts with particular editors. And this has limited the success rate, so to speak, of selling an article. People might be interested, but again, news 
related topics from for major publications are less of a priority than the feature stories now because uh, newspapers and magazines feel people are getting their information on daily, hourly reports from other sources, so they're not funding. The funding isn't available. The staff have been cut who are normally living overseas and in foreign bureaus. That's also being cut. So you have to now record sound, for instance. Uh, I'm more interested in doing audio than I am, say, in dropping the camera and picking up the video side of things. That makes post-production much more time-consuming, and I need the experts in, and that's also costly. So there are other ways. There's another business model that's out there, and it's constantly evolving. Also, the magazines and um, destinations for these stories also don't know where the funds are coming from. Advertising has left the hard copy. It's gone to the web. Yet they don't know how to monetize the web. There really isn't. A, it, and if I knew, if I had the answer to that, um, I'd be working 360 days of the year. But it's just, it's a big question mark. What would you most like Americans to understand about Afghanistan and its people? The short answer would be continued engagement and not to pack up and leave. To continue focusing on humanitarian aspects of the country, remain knowledgeable about the everyday events that are happening there and to continue to promote health, education, civil government, and the basic institutions that provide a better life for these people. They deserve a better life. And in that struggle, they've relied in the past upon outsiders. And in the past, a lot of those outsiders have committed themselves to, to a violent path. It's time really to refocus and to, to help with the reconstruction rather than maintain military presence. Security is important for every country, but to rebuild those institutions that have been taken down over the last 30 to 40 years, that's where I think our commitment needs to be. We've been talking today with Robert Nicholsburg, photojournalist and author of Afghanistan, A Distant War. Robert Nicholsburg, thank you for being with us. Thank this you is, very much. This is Anne Kibler for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.